If you uh, have your Bibles, we're continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation. We're in chapter 19 this morning, and we're going to look at verses 11 through 21. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and these guys will get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21. After reading through the verses, first service, after I got done reading with it, uh, it was like, oh man, we should have stood as we read these verses. And so, second service, we have that opportunity. Let's all stand as we read these verses together. And as as we do, I mean, you'll just go, yeah, we should be standing. (laughs) Starting in verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, and with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he had on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, Free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies, gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in, the present, in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Tell of my message is the king is coming. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can gather together in this place. We can rejoice, Lord, that you are coming. You are returning first for your church and then back, Lord, to bring judgment. We thank you, Lord, for your love and grace. We thank you, Lord, for your word and how powerful it is that you use it to change our lives through your Holy Spirit. Lord, we do pray if there's anyone that has joined us that does not have a personal relationship with your son, Jesus Christ, or not born again today, Lord, would you especially touch their heart and their life, that they would see their need for you, and they would turn to you today. Bless our time together, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Heard the story about a traveling salesman who's been out on the road all day long, and he finally gets to his hotel room. It's late at night. He's exhausted. He's getting ready for bed. He sits down on the edge of the bed and, and uh, takes off his big heavy boot. I mean, it just drops to the ground with just this loud thud. Then it dawned on him there might be someone below him in a room. Most likely, he probably just woke him up. So he thought, I'm going to just be real quiet with my other shoe, just kind of lay it down gently. And he did that, got in his pajamas, and, and off to bed he went. Suddenly, there was a knock on the door of his room. He opened the door and there stands before him a man with dark circles and bags under his eyes. And the man said, would you just let the other shoe drop so I can get some sleep? (laughs) 
just waiting and waiting and waiting. Well, here in Revelation 19, the other shoe is about to drop, so to speak. See, we've been building and building and building up to this point. We've looked at chapters 14 and 16 and 17 and 18. And and as bad as those things were going on, this is the climax. This is the grand finale. This is the final showdown. This is the battle of Armageddon and the return of Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes, we're going to see four things this morning. We're going to see, number one, the coming king. Number two, the coming army. Number three, the congregating birds. And number four, the captured beast. Now, verse uh, 11 of chapter 19 begins with the Apostle John saying, I saw heaven open. Now, remember back in chapter 4, it's been a while ago, uh, a door was opened to receive the church. And now here in chapter 19, the door is opened once again, this time for the exit of the church. Seven years later, now at the close of the Great Tribulation period, John describes in verses 11 through 16, the return of Jesus Christ with his church, the final manifestation of God's wrath upon the sinful world. And John here begins by describing what he sees, and that brings us to our first point, the coming king. Look at verse 11. Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. I mean, this is what we have been waiting for. This is the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. This is when Christ will make everything right. I want to point out seven things, seven descriptions of our Lord, of our King here in in these few verses right now. First and foremost, we see that he's riding on a white horse. Now, have you ever thought about how the Apostle John would have taken all of this in? I mean, John... He hung out with Jesus. He was used to being around him. They walked the earth together. John had followed Jesus for three years. They walked everywhere they went. They they went all over the place. Had three years worth of conversations together, one-on-one, not just what's recorded in Scripture. They had a lot of things that they talked about. John would remember the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of that donkey, not a horse, a donkey signifying humility. That Jesus, we read here, is on a horse. Now, why is that significant? Well, let me give you a few reasons why. Number one, a horse uh, was a symbol of wealth. Only those that were truly wealthy would, be, would travel by horse in those days, and they were reserved for kings and princes. So Jesus, as the king of kings and Lord of, and the prince of peace, is riding this horse, a symbol of honor. Secondly, a horse was a symbol of power. To the Jews, if you had horses in your army, it meant that you were a great army coming with great power. Jesus comes as the all-powerful one. No one can stand against him. Thirdly, a horse stood for swiftness. As we shall see of of his conquering of the enemy will be very swift, very quick, over in a moment. Fourthly, uh, Jesus comes not only a horse, but on a white horse. This speaks of victory. When a Roman general would return from battle where he had been victorious, he would ride on a white horse with the captives in tow behind him. So here Jesus is returning on a white horse because he's the victorious one. So the first thing we see is our coming king riding on a white horse and what that means. Secondly, we see that the the coming king is faithful and true. And that's what it says in verse 11. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. 
Now, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the four hallelujahs there uh, in the beginning. We looked at how those in heaven have encountered Jesus. And then in heaven, they, they don't question what Jesus does. He says he's going to do it. They don't question it. Now, we might do that down here on earth. But from a heavenly perspective, it's nothing but amen, hallelujah, uh, your judgments are right, they're true. Why? Because the Lord is faithful in all that he does. He's true in all that he does. This tells me that, that, that the more heavenly minded I become here on earth, and the closer to the Lord uh, that I get in spending more time in his presence, then I'm less prone to question God. Why is this happening? Or why is that happening? Why are you doing this, God? I won't be saying that, God, how come this is going on? I'll just trust him entirely with my life. Listen, the more mature a person becomes in a walk with the Lord, the less they question what God is doing. That doesn't mean we understand more. By the way, just choose to believe that whatever the Lord does in our lives, whatever he chooses for us, it's righteous, it's true, it's good for us because we know he is righteous and he is faithful and he is true. I mean, think of this last year and all we have gone through. For me, it's almost been a year since God saved me physically through the heart problems that I had. I shouldn't be here today. I think of, of you know, this coming Thursday, it'll be 22 years that my family moved out from Southern California, uh, pulled into Springfield on a Thursday afternoon, and the whole church was there waiting at our house, unloading all my truck, you know, the truck that we had, two trucks, I'm going through all of our stuff, it's kind of embarrassing, but, but anyway, <laughs> 22 years ago, I, I mean, 22, it's crazy. But I think about how faithful God has been over those years to provide for me and my family and how faithful He's been in my life personally through so many difficult times. And I know the same thing is true for many of you. See, He's the ultimate faithful friend who truly does stick closer than a brother in the Lord. Think about this. Has He ever deceived you? Has He ever not been faithful? Has He ever forgotten you? Has He ever failed you? I think some of you have gone through some very pretty heavy trials over the years. The death of loved ones, the financial losses, the trials with your kids, the, the trials with your parents, you know, the trials with your job. And, and, and I know there are times in the midst of those heavy trials where we thought maybe in our minds, where's God? God's abandoned me. I don't know what's going on. But as soon as we come out on the other side of that storm, if not before, we see that God has been with us all along. He's working and He's moving in our lives, taking care of us each step of the way. Again, if you've walked with the Lord for any amount of time, this is one thing that you can attest to, that the Lord, He is faithful and He is true. And I might add that His faithfulness is not predicated upon our faithfulness. When we are faithless, He is faithful. I think of the, of the dad who brought his possessed son to Jesus uh, to be healed. And Jesus said to him in Mark 9, 23 and 24, if you can believe all things are possible to him who believes. And I love this. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Yeah, Jesus was faithful to, to heal that man's son. But, but again, when, 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 when we are faithless, he is faithful. Lord, I believe, but you know I have some unbelief. You know that there's some faithless in me. God says, I'm, I'm faithful. Faithful and true. That's what he is, and that's what he does in all things. Let's look at, next, look at the next description we have of Jesus in verse 12. The coming king, his eyes were like a flame 
of fire. Now again, think of John. John often looked into the eyes of Jesus. John had seen Jesus' eyes weep over Jerusalem there. John had saw the tears of Jesus at Lazarus' graveside. He saw the, the gleam in Jesus' eyes. He looked at the faith of the centurion. He saw the love in his eyes as he looked with, with compassion upon the people. But now, what does John see? He sees a, a, a flame of fire in his eyes. Fire speaks of judgment. Here, Jesus' eyes, they're going to be piercing, penetrating. No one will be able to hide from his penetrating eyes. In fact, Hebrews 4.13 tells us, there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I mean, this is very, very awesome. This is an, an ominous description of our Lord. But listen, if you know the Lord, if you've been born again, then you know that the Lord who is a consuming fire doesn't want to burn you up doesn't desire to toast you. Rather, he wants to consume your life so that you will shine brightly for him. See, we all know that fire can be good or bad depending upon your relationship to it. If your house is on fire and you're trapped inside, it's a terrifying thing. But if there's five feet of snow outside and it's windy and it's blowing and it's cold, a warm fire in a fireplace is one of the best things. It's inviting and it's comforting. Same way, if you know the Lord and walking with Him in fellowship, those eyes are comforting. And they're assuring. And it's warm. And it's inviting. But if you're not right with the Lord, if you're fooling around in sin, rebelling against the Lord, those eyes are going to be piercing. They're going to be convicting. Or if you truly don't know the Lord, then those eyes are going to be terrifying, as we read here, because you're going to be standing before Him in judgment. And that's the case of those on the earth at this time of his coming who are gathered to fight against him in this battle. When Jesus comes in glory, his eyes will be filled with a holy indignation. He's going to cut right through all the hypocrisy, all the lies, all the excuses for not receiving his gift of salvation. And they're going to be consumed by just his look at them. They'll be stripped of all their false illusions of grandeur. They will see themselves as doomed. Kind of like remember when you were a kid and you're acting up maybe with your brother or sister just acting up when you got the look. You know what the look is. You know, mom or dad turns around and just that, that glare. You go, oh man, I, I, I think I pushed it a little too far. Mom's done. I'm going to die. <laughs> it's that look of indignation. So this coming king, his eyes, a flame of fire. Verse 12 goes on to say, third thing, and on his head were many crowns. Now again, the only crown that John saw that Jesus was wearing was a crown of thorns placed on his head at his crucifixion. That crown was crushed upon him as he took upon our sins upon the cross. But now, John sees Jesus wearing not just one crown, but many crowns, it says here. Many crowns speak of, speak of who he is. You heard the phrase, oh, he wears a lot of different hats around here. Well, we have Jesus with the crown of the creator. We have Jesus with the crown of the sustainer. We have Jesus with the crown for the king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus with the crown as, as head of the church. The crown speaks of absolute authority. As we read, he is the king of kings and lord of lords. And the entire world will bow before him. 
Fifth thing the coming king will have in verse 12, a name written that no one knew except himself. Now when I think about that, I think about some of the celebrities today and some of the weird names they name their kids. I don't know if you've, you've heard this. Ed Sheeran and Sherry Seaborn, they named their daughter Lyra Antarctica. She can be cold all the time. I, I don't know, you know. Uh, how about child of, of Elon Musk and Grimes named their son X-Ash, spelt X-A-E-A-12 Musk. Really? I mean, so, so X stands for the unknown variable. The A is the shorthand for artificial intelligence and the word for love in several languages. Uh, the A-12 is precursor to SR-17, their favorite aircraft. No weapons, no defenses, just speed. Great in battle, but nonviolent. So the kid is named after an unknown variable, artificial intelligent jet. <laughs> Poor kid. Nicholas Cage, you know, he's into the comics. He named his son, especially he's in the Superman, named him some Kal-El. Okay, I don't know. Or the late Frank Zappa, you've heard this before, had four kids. Moon Unit, Dweezel, Rodan Zappa, and Diva Muffin Zappa. Poor kids. But in the Bible, <laughs> Bible names speak of nature. Their nature. Remember Jesus said to Peter, you're Simon. That name means shifting sand. You're going to be called Peter, which means rock. I'm going to take that shifting sand nature of yours and turn you into a rock, Peter, through the power of my spirit. And God did just that. See, names in the Bible have meanings that go along with them. So when Jesus comes, he's going to be so majestic, so full of indescribable glory, that he has a name that no man can even fathom. Now, the neat thing is we'll spend eternity exploring the different distinctions of his nature in that new name. Next, number six, the coming king's garment in verse 13. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. I love this quote by the famous uh, preacher Charles Spurgeon. He said this, and I quote, This is the grandest thought about our master, that wherever he may be, that he is ever a red man wearing the bloody garment." As the atoning sacrifice, he is at his best. We love him as we see the white lily of his perfect nature. But the rose of Sharon is the flower for us, for it is sweet perfume. Its sweet perfume breathes life to our fainting souls. As the blood is the life of the body, so his blood, life to us. The life of the gospel, the life of our hopes, and how I delight to think that, though he rides the white horse, he is never stripped off the bloody shirt in which he won our redemption. He's coming to lay claim to that which he has redeemed, and he comes bearing the evidence of the price that he paid. I like that. His clothes dipped with blood is a constant reminder showing to us his magnifying love for us. I don't think any of us, this side of heaven, can fully understand the implications of our redemption. Not until we get to heaven. And even then, I'm not so sure. Verse 13, he's clothed with the robe, dipped with blood. And the seventh thing we read of this coming king is his name is called the Word of God. Now that's something that John knew. He didn't have to be told that, but, but he knew that because we remember what he wrote in John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things are made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And John went on to say in verse 14 of John 1, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
and we beheld his glory as of the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Listen, Jesus is the Word made flesh. As he has given us his written word to reveal himself to us. In fact, Jesus declared this of himself in Hebrews 10, 7. Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. In other words, Jesus says, this book that we have in our hands, it's all about him. It's all about, uh, about him. His word, it points back to him. See, the clearest method this side of heaven for us getting to know who Jesus is is found in the great pages of this book. That's why we put such a high priority of gathering together and going through the Word of God, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, getting to know Jesus from cover to cover. Now, why would the Word of God be the name that he's wearing or or that is revealed at his second coming? Well, I think there's a couple reasons for that. First and foremost, it's a statement of revelation, again, of who he is. It's all encompassing. All that can be known of him, all the other names and titles are all revealed in the word. But secondly, it's a statement of condemnation. Jesus is here returning to judge the world. See, the indictment against the world is written in bold for all to see that he is the word of God. And all those who have rejected Christ are going to see that they are without excuse. Because in order to reject Jesus Christ, you have to reject his word. The Bible we hold on our laps. You know, people say, well, well, I don't believe in the Bible. You know, they, but they've never taken any time to open it up and actually read it. It's an amazing book. It stands uh, up to the strictest textual criticism that's out there. It's been found to be more reliable than any other literary work in history. 66 books amazingly put together over 1,500 years using three different languages 40 different authors with different professions, yet from the very beginning to the very end, it all points to Jesus Christ. The Word made flesh and dwelt among us. And yet people have the audacity to say, well, I don't believe the Bible is full of contradictions. Well, show me one. Here, take my Bible, show me one contradiction. Well, I I, I, I just know they're there. No, you don't know. You just don't know. But see, God's Word is true whether you believe it or not. And I might add this, when it comes to hearing from the Lord, we do so from His Word first. It has to line up from His Word. A friend of mine posted this yesterday. I thought, of this and that's good. It says, the Lord told me, it's, the Lord told me is no substitute for the Bible says. People could say, oh, the Lord told me this. Oh, yeah, really? What, is, what does the Bible say? Well, I, I don't know. I like that. Listen, when Jesus returns at the end of the tribulation, He's coming to judge as he is revealed in the word of God as the word of God. And it's an indictment against man. They had the truth set before them as clear as could be. But as Romans one twenty five says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Listen, Jesus, the word said, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. But there are those who say even today, I don't believe that. Jesus will say exactly, that's why you're being judged. Amen. That's why. Now there might be some that say, well, Pastor, I don't like what you're saying. That's just your opinion. No, I'm sorry you don't agree, but, but don't take it up with me. I didn't write it. These are his words. He did. It's up to God, not my words. But you see, people are hurting today because they refuse to get into God's word and find the solutions that they're struggling with that they face today. 
People are confused today because of all the false teaching and cults that are out there because they refuse to get into God's Word and find the truth. People's lives are in turmoil today because they're looking for answers in all the wrong places. Hosea 4, 6 says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because they rejected the knowledge. It wasn't that the knowledge wasn't available to them. They, they rejected it. They rejected it. They ignored it. John puts it very well in John three nineteen and 20. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. They don't want to read the, the word because they'll be convicted from God's word. And they don't want to change. and They want to live in darkness. So this brings us to point number two. Point number one, the coming king. Point number two, the coming army. Look at verse 14. John says he sees the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now, who are these armies? Well, we know the Lord will appear with his angels, so that would include them, I would assume. But Enoch tells us in Jude 1.14, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment. More to the point, Colossians chapter 3, verse 4 says, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then we shall appear with him. And glory. So it shows us who we are. You and I as believers are going to be coming back with Christ at the second coming. We're going to have a, a ringside seat, if you will. The best, best view possible. We are a part of the Lord's army. Now, understand, we are part of the Lord's army. But we're not returning to battle with Jesus to help him out in the battle. Good thing you have us with us, God, because we're going to help you out. No, there's nothing we can do in this battle. We're just going to reign with him after the battle's over, after he defeats his enemies. We're not coming back to fight. We're coming back to observe him secure the victory. But notice how we come back. We're clothed in fine linen, white and clean, following him on white horses. If you've never ridden a horse in your life, you're going to get a chance to ride a horse. A white horse. Again, that speaks of the victory in Christ. Maybe this morning you're going, I don't really feel like a, a victor in Christ. But you know what? You already have victory in Christ. You just need to believe it. Paul wrote in Colossians, or rather 1 Corinthians 15, 57, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John says, in 1 John 5, 4, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. How do we have victory? Through our faith right now. It's faith that saves us. It's faith that keeps us. We're saved by faith. We walk by faith. We're born again children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. So faith in Christ is the only way which you and I will be able to overcome this world around us and how we will return in victory with Christ Jesus. Come riding in on our own white horses and we'll rule and reign with Jesus. It's going to be great. That's just riding a horse right then. That's a little action. This is great. Hey, Dan, watch. <laughs> I don't know. My mind off to one side. Sorry. All right. What is the only weapon that Jesus has taken with him? Look at verse 15. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. With it he should strike the nations. Ephesians 16 tells us the sword of the Spirit is the word of God. Hebrews 4.12 tells us, 
For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. When judgment comes here in Revelation 19, the word will slay the sinner. That's what we see going on here. In fact, speaking of Jesus in Isaiah 11, verse 4, it says, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Folks, there is so much power in the word of God. I think of Jesus when he was there in the Garden of Gethsemane and the, and the, the Judas came with the soldiers to arrest him. And, and, and they go there and Judas says, hey, listen, the guy that I kiss is going to be the one that you need to arrest. That's interesting to me because so often in artist renditions of Jesus, they show him with this glow around his head, you know, and, and, and that wasn't the case because if it was the case, then Judas would say, hey, look for the guy that's real shiny. That's the guy that, that's going to be it. No, the Bible says that Jesus was a man that had no beauty that we should desire him of himself physically. But the beauty is in the glory of God, the Spirit of God, God himself incarnated in the flesh. The character of God, the conviction of God, he was and is God himself. But you see, when they came to arrest Jesus in the garden, Judas kissed him, and the soldiers then came behind him, and Jesus said, Whom do you seek? So this huge company of fully equipped soldiers coming for one man, they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And when they said, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus responded and said, I am. And you know, we read there that they all fell backwards at the spoken word of Jesus. I mean, he took the title uh, of deity that was given to Moses when Moses asked God, who shall I say sent me? Which God replied, tell them I am sent you. Jesus says, I am. And that title just blew all those soldiers back down on the ground. And here's what's amazing. They got up and, and still arrested Jesus. But, uh, you know, at least he set them straight about his willingness to be captured. He let them, you know. I'm thinking they probably got up. It's not recorded in Scripture, but they probably got up and said, Excuse me, sir, would you mind if we arrested you, please? <laughs> but when Jesus comes back, it's all going to be over. There'll be no war in the sense of we think of war today. There'll just be the word spoken from him who sits on the white horse. You know, once Jesus spoke a word to a fig tree and it withered away to nothing. He spoke another word to the howling wind and the stormy sea and the clouds vanished and the sea became like glass. He spoke a word to the legion of demons in control of a poor man's soul and instantly they fled. And here Jesus will just speak a word and it's over. It's over. War's over. How powerful the word of God is. Genesis 1.1, we know this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did God create the heavens and the earth? He spoke it into existence. Hebrews 11.3 tells us, By faith we understand that the world were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. When darkness covered the earth, God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God spoke the world into existence that we live in. Word of God is so powerful. It doesn't return void. It accomplishes what it sets out to do. So we need to be those that share it, that quote it, that post it, that live it, that proclaim it. Someone once asked a great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, how do we defend the Word of God? Spurgeon replied, the Word of God is like a lion. How do you defend a lion? You don't. Just let it out of its cage. 
thing where we need to realize we don't need to defend the Bible, just let it out. How much more powerful and effective would God's church be if we could just simply realize the power behind the Word of God? See, in this final event, in this culmination of man's rebellion against God, this is the final showdown. This is when the world all comes together for this final battle, and Jesus will just speak a word, and it will be over. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8 tells us, speaking of the Antichrist, that the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. It will be over. Verse 15, we read that Jesus will rule the nations, it says, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. Now, many people like to portray Jesus as this, this weak you know, guy, you know, even though he's described as meek, it's not weakness. They make him a very infeminate, that, oh, he, he could never punish sin. Yes, he is a God of love. And yes, he came in humility, but he also is a holy and righteous God, and he cannot ignore the sin of people, and he will judge it because the word demands that it happens. And he will obey the word just as he always has so far. He will carry out judgment. Today, God deals with man in grace. And he urges men to obey him and to love him and to turn from their sin. But here in chapter 19, he's going to show his strength and glory and the day of grace will be over. At this point, when Jesus rules and reigns, they'll be required to obey. You know, the emblem for, the, for today for the Christian is the cross. Reminds us of what Jesus did upon the cross and how he submitted to death and, and the blood he shed for us. But when the day that, that grace is over and Jesus returns, this emblem is going to be a rod. He's going to stand in power that cannot be resisted. Today, it's in tenderness. Jesus invites all to come and follow him. And that day, that tenderness is turned to wrath. In fact, verse 15 goes on. It says, He himself treads the winepress of the fiercest and wrath of Almighty God. In other words, when he comes, he's going to wipe them out. Why? Because they rejected him as their Lord and as their Savior. He's going to destroy them. He can do that. Why? Because he is, verse 16, uh, the King of kings and Lord of lords. It says, and on his robe and on his thigh name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Let that sink in for a moment. That's why I wanted to stand when we read this. It's just an honor of who he is, the King of kings and Lord of lords. So important we understand this. Because what's going to happen, as we'll see in a moment, is all the nations of the earth will be gathered under the leadership of the Antichrist and begin to fight against the Lord and us as we return with the Lord. But the battle, again, as I said already, will be over before it begins. There's no one like our Lord. King of kings, Lord of lords, and what he says uh, will be done. In fact, well done. (laughs) Point number three, the congregating birds. Look at verses 17 through 19. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying, To all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of all those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies, gathered together to make war against him, who sat on the horse and against his army. Verse 21, And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Chapter 19 started out with the marriage supper of the Lamb. It ends with the birds feasting on the corpse of Christ rejecting men. It's a gruesome, gruesome scene. I tell you, I know what feast I want to be a part of. (laughs) See, the armies of this world that are loyal to the Antichrist, 
They're gathered together in this valley of Megiddo to prevent the return of Jesus Christ. They're fighting against each other. And as soon as Jesus returns, yeah, they're going to turn to fight against Jesus Christ. But look what happens in verse 19. And I saw the, the beast, the kings of the earth and armies, gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. <laughs> you know, they're, they're all gathering together like some bully, some tough guy. And we think, well, we're going to show Jesus. We're going to get him. Think about what Psalm 2 says in verses 1 through 5. Gives us some in, insight into this very scene. Listen to Psalm 2. It says, Why do the nations rage, and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against the anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Man has been trying to overthrow the authority of God long before chapter 19, but this is their, their final attempt. All the nations that could do nothing but fight back and forth with each other, now they're lined, aligned together to fight against God. The greatest moment of unity in the history of man, as they're all coming together against God and the hatred towards God. Yet listen to what we're told to in, in verses 4 and 5 of Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. I can picture Jesus going, <laughs> are you serious? Are you serious? You're coming against me? <laughs> He'll laugh at them and speak and destroy them with just his word. It's going to be over that fast. And the carnage, I mean, we read it, it's going to be incredible. Incredible. Why? Because they're all gathered in this place. Remember chapter 14, verse 20. We read, the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles for 1,600 furlongs. That's a lot of people gathered all in one place that are all going to be destroyed immediately. For 200 miles around Armageddon, this carnage is going to be great. The blood will be so deep it will reach as high as a horse's bit. Now understand, all the punishment that Jesus gives out will be fully deserved because he has been rejected. In his place, a murder of the Antichrist was accepted. And man has been warring against God for some 6,000 plus years, even though he's been defeated time and time again. And we see the insanity that even going on today, growing stronger and stronger, man's hatred against God and anything that, that, that's of the Lord that they want to put out. And it's growing more and more intense until man is insane enough to think that he can actually stand and go toe-to-toe against God himself. Who again, God will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 We are getting closer and closer to this day. And if the signs of Jesus' second coming are here, what does that say about the rapture of the church? And I am ready to go. Point number four, our final point. We'll close with this. The captured beast. Look again at verse 20 and 21. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, but which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Notice, the beast and the false prophet they're sent to the pit right away. Everyone else has got to wait for the great white throne judgment. But God says, these two guys, 
not so much. You're going right into the pit. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. You're going in. I mean, they have the dubious distinction of being the first ones cast alive into the lake of fire. Radical. I want to close with this. Here we have John. Picture him sitting there on the island of Patmos. He's writing all of this down. Taking all of it in. And it just blows his mind. And we looked at last week, if you recall, that John seeing all this, he began to worship the angel that was showing him all this stuff that was going down. But the angel said, whoa, hold on a minute. Back in verse 10, it says, See that you do not do that. I'm your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Angel says, don't do that. You're going to get us both, both in trouble. Worship God. But a very important statement here, and I don't know if you underlined it last week, but I encourage you to underline it this week. It's the very last part of verse 10, where it says, for the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. This brings it all together. What does this mean? What it means if you read the book of Revelation, but do not grow in your love for Jesus, then you've missed the whole point. Remember, revelation means unveiling. It's not just the unveiling of our future. It is the unveiling of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He is the star of revelation. He's the focus of revelation. He should be the star and focus of our lives as well. Sometimes we get in the Bible prophecy, and we go to every Bible prophecy conference there is and we listen to every podcast on Bible prophecy and we read every webpage on it and, and then we have these animated debates about the meaning of this and the meaning of that and, 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 and I, I, I just think these people if they're not changing the if it's not changing the way they live, then they're missing the whole point. Prophecy is not given to inflate our brain, it's given to enlarge our hearts. It's given to help us draw closer to our God. The spirit of prophecy, that's what it's all about. It's about the testimony of Jesus. That is the spirit of prophecy. As we read these things that are going to happen, it should draw us closer to our relationship with the Lord. Yes, it is the revealing of the future. But it is also the revealing of Christ. And here's the bottom line. Jesus is coming. He's coming for believers. One day we will finish this life upon this earth and we will have to give an account for how we have lived this life for what we have done with the time that we had on this earth. What we did with the gifts that God has given to us. Did we develop them? Did we cultivate them? Did we use them for His glory? What do we do with the resources that He's given to us? Did we invest in the kingdom? What did we do with our lives in general? We will give an account. For us as believers, it's not whether or not we get into heaven. We'll be, we'll be in heaven. We'll make it heaven. But we'll be rewarded or frankly not rewarded according to how we lived. That's for us. So live your life well. Live it for the glory of God. Don't lose your testimony. So many people in these days in which we're living, they're, they're, they're blowing it in their last day. They're, they're, they're losing their testimony. Don't lose your testimony. Now for non-believers, there is coming a day where you'll have to stand before God and the books will be open, and, and which is the book of life. And for those that have not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it'll be too late. I think sometimes people say, well, I get to heaven, I'm going to stand before the good Lord, I'm just going to talk my way out of this whole thing. Listen, at that time, it's going to be way too late. Well, I believe my good works outweigh my bad works, so I'll be able to come in. 
but that's not the way you're going to be judged. But let's just say for a moment, just for the sake of an argument, that you'd be judged on that basis. If your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, would you get to heaven? Do you really think you have more good deeds than bad deeds? I don't think so. I don't think we'd pass that test if it was true, but it's not true. It's not true. You're not judged on that basis. You are judged according to what you did with Jesus Christ. In the end, it's not so much a sin question as it is a son question. What did you do with Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Did you accept the sacrifice that he paid for your sin upon that cross? Do you put your faith and trust in him? Do you believe in him? Then you're forgiven. You're in heaven. You're going to be coming back with him. If you reject him, you turn away from him, you won't. You're out. It's that simple. Jesus said it. Either for me or against me. He said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father who is in heaven. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father who is in heaven. Where are you at with Jesus this morning? Listen, the first time Jesus came in humility and died on the cross. The second time, he's coming with power and glory as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, don't wait another moment. We don't know how much time we have left. I encourage you, open God's word, read it for yourself. You see, he's coming back. He loves you. He died on the cross for you. Give your life to him. For us, hang in there. Be faithful. He's coming soon. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Lord, thank you for your written word, Lord, that we can look at it. We can study it. And Holy Spirit, you give us understanding and application to our lives from it. Lord, thank you for our salvation. I do pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that is yet to give their life to you, they're not born again today, Lord, help them not to wait another moment. Help them to give their life to you. Put their faith and trust in you. And for us as believers, Lord, Lord, we just ask for a boost of your spirit. Help us to get through some of these dark days that we're facing, Lord. Lord, we know that you're faithful. We know that you're true. You've been faithful for, for so many years, Lord. And we recognize that, and we know that you'll be faithful in the future. Help us to be faithful. Help us to stay true. Help us to stay focused. Lord, I'm excited. We're excited to see your return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.